1: Rando Skyhorse is a graduate of Stanford University and the MFA Writer's Workshop program at UC Irvine. His first novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, received the 2011 Penn-Hemingway Award and the Sue Kaufman Award for First Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. The book was also a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer's Pick. He's currently the 2014 Jenny McKean Moore Writer in Washington at George Washington University, and um, here he is to discuss Take This Man.
0: Thank you, thank you for being here, microphone for a small room, it's obnoxious, so not as obnoxious as this shirt I'm wearing, so how are you guys doing tonight? I'm really happy that you're here, here's my overblown enthusiasm to get you to come in and say like, yeah, this is going to be a fun event, so. um. These are always a little interesting for me. I haven't read in Los Angeles in maybe four years. uh, So, it's interesting to see some familiar faces and also some new faces as well. So, um, forgive me if I sort of stumble and try to find my way through this thing here. Um, This is a book I've been working on for a really long time, um, and I'm really gratified by the response that it's been getting from uh, various booksellers and people who've been reading it, but I'm more gratified to see people at events like this. So, um, if this is your first time to Skylight, please, you know, stick around afterwards. Buy my book, buy both of my books, buy books for friends, but just, you know, stick around. Uh, indie bookstores like this are really sort of the lifeblood of communities uh, like Los Feliz. Um, there wasn't a bookstore in Echo Park when I was growing up, and there's a, you know, a wonderful bookstore called Stories there now. So, you know, really make an effort to patronize these kinds of places because they're really important for writers. Uh, because uh, writers need a space to develop and sell their work. And I actually see a couple of writers in the audience right now. I'm looking at a couple of them uncomfortably. So, without further ado, I'm probably going to read about maybe 14 or 15 minutes worth of stuff, and then generally what happens after these things is that you have like kind of a weird, awkward Q&A where the writer's like, well, ask me questions, but since I know about 50% of you, that seems really kind of weird and pointless, so maybe someone could ask one question, and then maybe I could do one more reading, and then we can sign or hang out and, you know, play with the cat or whatever. That was a cat, right? Okay, that's good. It was a cat, because, you know, I just can't came from New York, so you never know, with something that size, so um, we'll start, we'll start off in the beginning of the book, and uh, before I get into it, I just want to thank a couple of people in particular for being here. Uh, I'd like to thank one of the central characters of this book, Take This Man, my dad, Frank, who's sitting here in the front row. Thank you for coming. Much deserved applause. Uh, I'd like to thank also my friend Jeff Lido, who gets the award for driving the longest distance to come here for, all the way from San Diego, California. Thank you, sir. i was really happy that you're here. And of course, I, I would be remiss if I did not thank my two incredible sisters, two, right? oh uh, one and uh, two, yeah, okay. So uh, my amazing sister, uh, Kareny, who's sitting here in the front row, and will also be available to sign books. So that's really the only, this is the only space in LA where you're going to get a signed copy from her and myself. And uh, Adriana, Adriana, I know you're here, right? You're here with your son, right? Just, just shout out where you are, because I can't really see you. Okay. Well, maybe, Oh, there she is. Okay. So she's in the children's section. Um, she will also be happy to sign books, but you'll have to go back there to get it done. So let me start off here with a, a quick section that kind of just you know, lays out the book and tells you what it's about. And you know, we'll kind of take it from there. All right, guys. Thank you guys for spending this lovely Wednesday evening with me. I'm really happy that you guys are here. All of you. Appreciate it. I was three years old when my father abandoned me and my mother in my grandmother's house atop a crooked hill on Porsche Street in a Los Angeles neighborhood called Echo Park. My mother, Maria Teresa, a Mexican who wanted to be an American Indian, transformed me into Brando Skyhorse, a full-blooded American Indian brave. I became the son of Paul Skyhorse Johnson, an American Indian activist incarcerated for armed robbery, whom my mother met through the mail. She became Running Deer Skyhorse, a full blooded squaw who traded in her most common of Mexican names for the most stereotypical of Indian ones. My mother was mesmerizing and could make crazy schemes and lies sound honest and electric. Her deception was so good or so obvious, she fooled each of her five husbands, our neighbors, her friends, my elementary school vice principal, even me. I lived most of my childhood without knowing who i really was all i knew was the power in my own name brando skyhorse that's beautiful my biological father candido Uyoa was replaced by a chain of boyfriends and five fathers one new dad about every three years Along with Paul, whom I first met while he was in prison, there was Robert, a restless, habitual Aleutian Indian thief, Pat, a restaurant chef with a penchant for disappearing, Rudy, a man who answered a singles ad from a homeless shelter, and Frank, a Mexican-American office straight, what my mother called men who worked actual jobs, who wanted a son but could not marry my mother. The only way to keep them straight was to imagine what actors would play them in a movie made from my life. Paul Skyhorse Johnson, Will Sampson, the American Indian chief from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Robert, Esai Morales, a hot Esai Morales, La Bamba Esai Morales. Pat, Roseanne Era John Goodman, Rudy, present day Robin Williams plus 30 pounds. Frank, I've known him the longest, so I can't imagine him in caricature. If he were asked, and I did ask him, he'd say, Chris Noth from Law and Order, or <laughs> Michael Nori from the movie Flashdance, in that order. These men were never simply my mother's boyfriends or partners. They weren't surrogate dads or stepfathers. I couldn't call them by their first names, nor was I allowed to speak about any past father in the presence of a new one. My mother made it clear that these men, trying to be men, were my fathers, absorbed instantly into our tiny clan of mother, grandmother, and me, so we could be or pose as a family. Life with each of these fathers followed a similar path, First I was forced to accept them, then slowly I trusted them, then I grew to love them, and then they left. Some boys don't have any father in their life, my mother would say, bucking me up. You had five. It's plenty for one boy. I was father-rich, but family-poor. Our house shook as if it were filled with people, brothers, sisters, a chorus of screaming children, but really belonged to just two angry women who were five foot and change tall. We shopped at the smart and final warehouse for commissary-sized shake-and-bake and and restaurant-style cartons of frozen burgers, purchasing family-sized packs and gross for a family that could fit in a hatchback. We were a triangle trying to fill a circle. So now that I've told you a little bit about that, let me tell you a little bit about my mother. I think that's a line from Blade Runner, right? I think it's something like that. So my mother... A pudgy, well-behaved child with pigtails, Maria won good citizenship awards in school seven years running. She was a good girl at home, too, and couldn't understand why her mother would sometimes, while combing Maria's long, tangled hair, would lose her patience and strike her back with a wooden brush. Maria turned to her collection of ceramic statues of Catholic saints for answers, but they kept quiet. When June threatened to kick my teenage mother out of the house, Maria smashed her saints to pieces and tossed them into a garbage bag. It would not be the last time my mother cleaned up her past this way and erased any trace of something to which she'd been so devoted. Maria stopped being a good girl at Belmont High School. She had either on a dare or through intimidation joined a street gang and became a chola. They're a teeny bopper gang, my grandmother June scoffed. They don't even use knives. The experience was scary enough, though, to get June and Emilio, my grandfather, to transfer my mother to Hollywood Professional an all grades private school on Hollywood Boulevard that in 1963 cost $300 a semester. A half-hour bus ride from Echo Park, the school was for kids who needed classes arranged around a budding musician's or actor's schedule. At Hollywood Professional, Maria was free to wear her long-dyed, blood-red hair beehive high. She showed off her dark skin. tight black dresses and spoke what little Spanish June had taught her to attract the white boys. She wanted to be new, dangerous and sexy, everything she had never been and could never be in Echo Park. Here my mother would come to understand the power of being exotic, the power of being the other she refused a small role in Spartacus offered by a casting agent who hung out at the school. She met Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys high on coke and drunk all the time doing his best to transform his drug adult palsy into charm as he played with her hair during study period called her baby and said he'd ask his brother Brian to write a song for her. She hung out with James Mason's daughter Portland and earned a bevy of female admirers and friends by throwing a young bratty Charlene Tilton future Jezebel of TV's primetime soap opera, Dallas, Down a Flight of Stairs. She was voted Duchess of the Harvard Ball 1963, and made rich friends who encouraged her to live with the kind of reckless, self-destructive abandon only money and privilege can afford. Her best friend was a spoiled Bel Air Jewish princess named Betty. They drank, drugged, and partied together until the early 1970s when Betty married an Asian man, moved to Florida, had a child, and in a fit of depression and rage bashed her baby girl's head in with a hammer and was sent to death row. After Hollywood Professional, my mother had fallen in love with a sandy haired blonde named Mike and gave birth to two children before me, both of whom had befallen their own separate inconceivable tragedies. A son named Shane, who in his black and white photograph looked like a porcelain doll with onyx marbles for eyes, had a congenital heart defect. A hole in his heart, which my mother instinctively knew was there, but that an unsympathetic hospital staff ignored, claimed his life at three. My mother's snow-white Blonde, Blue eyed blonde daughter Janaine Deborah Patterson had been kidnapped, also at three, by a jealous babysitter and disappeared. The police scoffed at my mother's claims to the Caucasian baby, letting crucial time lapse after Janaine's abduction. In a grainy color photograph taken in our house's backyard in the 1970s, my mother holds Janaine dressed in a pink jumper, high in her arms, the one piece of evidence that my mother had given birth to a beautiful girl that nobody believed was hers. What else didn't people believe? I mean, how much of this was true? Spartacus had been in theaters for three years when my mother transferred to Hollywood Professional. Dennis Wilson never went there though his younger, Shire brother Carl Wilson did to escape ravenous fans at Hawthorne High. Portland Mason and Charlene Tilton, who went to Hollywood High School several years later, aren't noted among Hollywood professionals' illustrious alumni. There were no women on Florida's death row at the time my mother claimed that Betty was there. Shane and Janine both exist in photographs. Shane's in my memory. Janaine's in my possession. While I maybe saw a trace of my mother in Shane's face, I realize now there's no possible way a woman with my mother's features and skin color gave birth to a blonde, blue-eyed, fair-skinned girl. Years later, I noticed a tiny timestamp on the trim of Janaine's photo that says August 1977, which meant that Janine would have been my younger and not older fake sister. Yet for years years these children were resurrected whenever I misbehaved, a make-believe sister and brother to go with my make-believe father and ethnicity who met horrible make-believe ends. My mother had so much pain to share that she had to invent people to hurt. Yet in every lie she told, she always made sure to give something back to you. It could be a Weight Watchers meeting where she claimed a ribbon for losing 50 pounds after submitting a falsified weight loss card. Then she'd hit another meeting at another Weight Watchers branch later in the week, claiming the same weight loss ribbon twice. She lost all that weight in six weeks, someone whispered, she looks great. (laughs) If I can do it, she told a rapt group of hopeful women, you can do it too. It could be the Overeaters Anonymous group where she ran into John DeLorean, the disgraced auto executive who had beaten government drug trafficking charges and was at OA because he'd, quote, started eating lots of junk food during his trial, end quote, and needed to find, quote, a self-empowering Christian way to lose weight. He told his fellow heirs not to lose faith and gave my mother his business card. Come work for me, John DeLorean said. My mother never found his card, no matter how often I asked. It could be leading a group of wide-eyed pilgrims my mother's term for whites, around a jewelry store, rubbing Southwestern squash blossom necklaces and sterling silver bracelets between her fingers, using a just for white people Indian voice, a taffy pull on her slight Latina accent. She'd pronounce whether a piece of turquoise had been crafted by a real on the res skin. Of course, my mother had no idea which pieces were authentic, but if her details didn't add up or connect at all, you still wanted to believe her. Why? You felt privileged that someone with such an extraordinary story would choose to confide in, of all people, you. You'd forget meeting a hundred people, but you'd remember meeting my mother. Her story became your story. I can't wait to tell my friends I met an Indian, one of my mother's pilgrims told her in a sincere embrace. She rattled with the jewelry my mother helped her buy. Thank you. Hey, my mother would say, at least it's never boring. I got one more section, I think, for you here. Let's see. And this is gonna be a little weird to read with the sound of children laughing in the background. So let that be a warning to you. Um, Let's see. Um, Probably right here. (sighs) It was your idea, Brando, my mother said, for me to become a phone sex operator. My mother, grandmother, and I were watching television in the living room. This was before my mother and I had separate TVs in our own rooms. Three televisions for three people who couldn't share. On that day's Donahue phone sex operators. Women who have explicit sexual conversations with men for money. A black silhouette with crescent rolls of vertiginous hair spoke in a digitally graveled voice about the virtues of the job. Working from home, lots of tax-free income, power over men. I turned to my mother and said, you could do that. How had I at 10 years old become my mother's pimp? She leapt from what she called straight jobs to sex worker because she felt victimized by a series of menial office jobs, the last of which was at a recruiting office, the ironically named Manpower, where she worked as a headhunter. She quit when she was cheated out of a large commission, or to translate into what she'd call white man's words, fired for insubordination. There were few work options left to a two-year community college graduate, an amateur unemployed paralegal via a mail order diploma course, and a. Morinello schools of beauty drop out too many fights with her customers. She replied to a tiny box ad soliciting adult phone actresses for a company called Inside Moves in Pacific Palisades it operated like a taxi service a client called asking for a woman with particular attributes, tall, voluptuous redhead, and gave his credit card and callback number to a dispatcher or screener, she then contra- contact one of the operators or girls on call and give her the client's request, the girl then called the client collect at the number he almost always a he, had provided when the call was over the screener would charge the client's credit card based on how many minutes the call had lasted, the girl earned a percentage based on how many minutes were billed. The longer she kept the client on the phone, the more money both she and her company made. My mother gave an alias for her payroll check. Over the more than 10 years that she'd worked in the business, she'd cycled through new billing names for a host of reasons marriage, switching companies, remarriage, eluding obsessive clients, re remarriage. She accumulated a deck of bad fake IDs to cash checks with no payroll taxes deducted that erased any trace of her Mexican ancestry and spliced together her two fake Indian names Running Deer Skyhorse, Maria Running Skyhorse, Maria Running Deer, Mia Skyhorse. Mia was a favorite alias. She fanned them out like a deck of cards. I can be anyone I want, she said. It wasn't easy at first. My mother vomited after her first several phone calls. Then she got the hang of it. After several calls experimenting with various names, ethnicities, and gradations of voice, a clear winner emerged. My mother became Kara Lee, a 23-year-old Irish grad student from Chicago. Straight sex calls, missionary, no kink, were simple. Rape, incest, molestation calls the toughest, though she could do a convincing mimic of an eight-year-old girl. Gimme a Wowie Pop, she'd say at the kitchen table to make me laugh, though I knew without understanding that she was never this chaste on the phone. Golden and brown shower calls, her explanations were useful verbal ammunition for the coming leap to junior high, made her laugh. Domination calls were her favorite because they didn't involve graphic sex. On an ever-expanding Rolodex, she kept a card for every man she spoke to, noting the date and length of each call, where he lived, when his birthday was, his children's names, and whether he liked to imagine Kara Lee, that is, my mother in black stockings, or red lace panties, or crotchless. She listened to their insecurities, celebrated their triumphs, commiserated with them over life's disappointments, and acknowledged with handwritten thank you notes their gifts of flowers, chocolates, and classical music sent to her call center. Her calls could last anywhere from 10 minutes, get them off, and get them off to marathon six-hour therapy sessions, but her therapeutic duties were always second to arousing her clients. My mother scoured pornographic magazines for sexual scenario ideas, but was too embarrassed and too tethered to her telephone to buy them. So she sent my grandmother to the neighborhood stand on the corner of Sunset and Echo Park Avenue. Hola, how are you, Julio, my grandmother would say. "Ah, oh, como estas, abuelita? Everything good? Bien, bien, it's busy, busy. What have you got today, she'd ask. Got the new penthouse form you wanted, Julio said, all business. My mother got her best ideas from forms. How about, my grandmother said, putting on her bifocal reading glasses and looking at a list jugs and high society next week then give me the form of reader's digest and an Ellery Queen I need my mysteries my grandmother said oh and don't forget the new hustler the money my mother earned was good for the early 1980s, up to 600 tax free dollars a week, not including her welfare checks and food stamps. With our new fortunes came a cornucopia of constipating middle class American comforts hamburger helper, spam, hormel chili, shake and baked chicken, hungry man frozen dinners. We bought a microwave the size of an air conditioner and a popcorn popper that roared like a military hairdryer. Out with the co- Kool-Aid in with Capri Sun and Sunny Delight, cans, seared foil, and poked through cellophane replaced fruit rinds and empty flour sacks in our garbage. We graduated from government cheese to Velveeta. I drank whole milk by the gallon, and I ate so much bacon I broke out in hives. My mother had packed up my stuffed animals long ago, but now our play-acting games moved to the telephone. She read reviews in Los Angeles Magazine of expensive restaurants in Beverly Hills and West Hollywood, where it was impossible to get reservations. Do you think you can get us a table, my mother asked. Here's the phone. Call them and let's see. Mater D's that scoffed at my mother's name softened when they heard mine. We celebrated a 9.30 table at Spago, party of two by ordering a pepperoni pizza from the local joint down the block." My mother had a strict policy at first that I never entered her locked room while she was on call, but with her home all day, I gravitated toward her like a satellite. Over time, the membrane of my mother's closed door became porous, and I could gauge when to leave a tray of food by her closed door or whether I could creep into her bedroom to lay out dinner for her on her bed. Ever the improviser, she'd wink and smile over how boring a call was or would pantomime a funny second performance for me. One time, I brought a salad in a large stainless steel bowl and she told her client that she was going to make a salad in his asshole. Tossing salads, anyone? Then she had me stir the leafy contents for her, making sure the fork scraped hard against the metallic rim. Other times she asked me to slap my palms together to lend flesh slapping effects to a character she created called the Pampers Man, a grown man she kept in her house on a chain who liked to be spanked and diapered. None of this felt inappropriate to me. We were like two children playing a practical joke on an unsuspecting adult. Perhaps on his end of the phone, he was looking at one of the special advertisement cards Inside Moves had printed up to promote my mother's popular fictional creation. On the card, Carol Lee had pouty, deep sea green eyes, helium lips, ice-pick sharp cheekbones, 36-24-36 measurements, and curly shoulder-length brunette hair, and wore striped V-cut panties with a tight T-shirt clasped into a sexy knot around her taut belly. In red letters on the shirt, I am the woman your mother warned you about, but what if this woman was your mother? (laughs) Thanks a lot, guys. Oh, that wasn't too bad, right? <laughs> you must all have m- so many questions, or I probably answered most of them. Does, d- do we have to do this? Does anybody have a question? I'm happy to answer them, but like I said, I know most of you here, so you can just sort of like not apply. Oh, thank you. God bless. Hello. Mm-hmm. First of all, when I read the book, none of that was funny. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Whoops.
1: <laughs> <laughs> So I'll run away by it. But my question is <laughs> now
0: that the <laughs> so incredibly honest and we disclose so much. Do you ever regret anything? Do I ever regret disclosing this much? No. No, not really. I mean it was something that I had to do and uh my hope was that by doing it. Other people might get something out of it, something valuable and meaningful, because there were many, many times in my life where I just was really kind of going out of my mind. And people turned to different things for different, you know, sort of pleasures and such. You know, some people turned to music, drugs, alcohol, or whatever, and I would always turn to books. They were the one thing that kind of kept my sanity and kept me from going just out of my mind. I assume there are a few of you out here in this audience that feel the same way. And I wanted a book on the shelf that I wanted back, you know, when I was in high school. This is the book I wanted. Because I knew something intuitively was wrong, but I couldn't really put my finger on it. And the only way I think to do a book like this is to be completely honest and truthful. Um, I, I don't think there's any other way. I think anybody would be able to spot a fake. You know, not that they could do it with my mother, but they can, readers can spot a fake. So... That's what's been really gratifying, is um, you know doing this and talking to people and you know hearing the responses that I've been getting from readers in return. Um, I'm sorry it wasn't funny when you were reading it. <laughs> I I know I, no I mean I mean that sincerely because. Um, the last thing I wanted to do was to write a sort of grim catalog. Oh, and then this happened, and this happened, and this blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah, like, a lot of crazy stuff happened, but there has to be some sort of point. <laughs> and I hope that by the time you got to the end of the book, you understood what the point was. I, I hope. I hope. But, um, yeah, so is there uh, anything else, or should I read, like, one more little closing thing to kind of send you off home, or is, does, that sound, does that sound good? Uh, are you yeah. still in therapy? Uh, uh, no, 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 no. I I have my father here with me now, so he gets to hear all of my craziness. Oh, yes, sir. Hello. Process question. Oh, process (laughs) question. What I I want to hear you talk about is, in terms of being that honest, what was the hardest thing to really be honest about in telling a story? What did you really want to tell about but ended up forcing yourself? I didn't want to be, thank you for that, by the way, I didn't want to be honest about me. Because I live with so many larger than life characters, it was easy for me to kind of get pushed off the page. So when I turned in the first initial drafts of this book, it was easy to write about my mother because she was very funny. My grandmother was over the top and all these sort of stuff I had, they all sort of had crazy experiences and such. And that was fun and very cathartic to do. But as my editor kept telling me, over the course of two years and three different drafts, nobody cares about those people if they don't know who you are. So I really had to go back each time and add more and more and more um, about me into it. And I would always respond in the same way to her. I would say, well, I'm just not very interesting. I would just rather not be in this book at all. That would have been the memoir I would have loved to have written. In fact, that's the memoir I did write. But nobody—well, my editor wouldn't have accepted that, and nobody I think would have bought it. So um, that was really kind of the key, and that's what's been really gratifying with the book out now and like sharing all of this about me and my experiences. People have already started to share back with me, and that's been a really amazing, cool thing. So, uh, yeah. Hello. So I think you said. Has- Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, you know, regardless of trauma, too, I think a lot of people have looked at books as their friends growing up. Yeah. So when you're seeing that a reader is coming to you and coming to you for a vision, um, do you think humor is the dog? It's gotta be funny. I mean I mean I don't really know any other way. Um, I remember seeing a, a documentary many years ago. Uh do you remember that documentary Crumb about Robert Crumb? And actually I saw it with this gentleman right here. And I remember he was telling me after the documentary, he's like, Man, like, you know, he just wrote off everything with a joke, didn't he? Every single thing was funny, every sort of horrible catalogue of misery in that movie. Oh, then you know, his brother died and Bob's like, Ha ah, this thing's funny. I mean obviously one can get a little too carried away with that, but If you don't have that humor, what else is there? You know, um, depression, anxiety, I've wrestled with all of those things and I feel like I've been very candid in the book about whenever you have this kind of experience, you come out the other side, but you're changed. I've heard people talk in similar ways about how, like, you know, after they do drugs, they, like, they don't really perceive the universe in the same way. And I think it's really disingenuous to write a book where all of these kind of intense things happen and to not acknowledge, yeah, like, I survived, but there was a cost. And, of course, there's always a cost. So... I sure. A lot of people- yeah. Um, it's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. I don't really know. I, I don't know. I think that's something I'll need to think about. You know, I someone who loves humor. I I see it as a gift. Um, yeah, I do. I I really see it as sort of like a, a you know, sort of close to grace. You know, I but I'm not really very funny. So, you know, that's, no, I'm not, it's not meant to be funny. I'm not a funny guy. Like, I mean, it's like, it's taken me a lot of time to, to, to come to grips with like this story being, oh yeah, it was kind of funny. I mean, like even now, like, you know, sort of like recounting these stories about my mother, every time I come to town and I hang out with, with Frank, you know, we talk about the things that happened and some of the crazy stuff that like, you know, my mother did. Like, we laugh about it. Like, we'll just sit in the car, like driving up and down LA, just laughing our asses about it. Cause it's, you know, it's funny. It's You know, a woman who pretended to be American Indian was a phone sex opera five that's funny but like when you're doing it when you're living it it's like it's not funny at all so it's about having that distance I think and having enough grace in yourself to see the absurdity of it and not taking yourself too seriously Um, I've met a lot of people both writers and non-writers who take themselves way too seriously and I always try to remind myself not to do that and it can be very hard because I live in New York because there are a lot of people who take themselves very seriously. Yeah, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So that's kind of like where I'm coming from. It's maybe perhaps kind of reflexive. Maybe it's a, a sort of an attempt to deflect, but I have to protect myself at a certain point. So, yeah, sure, no, of course. No. Sure. I don't know. I don't really know. I mean, that's a really that's a, a really astute question. I have to feel that people who come out the other end who don't make it, and by you know, I'm assuming you mean people who commit suicide or people who like just end up permanently dysfunctional or like you know, permanently angry or that, that kind of thing. Is that what you mean, or like? <laughs> No, I, no, I, yeah, I, I wish I had something more articulate to riff, <laughs> so, uh, but no, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's, th- those, those, that's really interesting. I, it's something that um, I clearly need to think about more. But, um, yeah. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, hello. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're very kind. I appreciate that. I'm working on a novel, I have one of three different ideas, and I'm doing a novel, my first novel, which is available for purchase here up at the counter, The Madonnas of Echo Park, shameless plug. Um, I originally wrote fiction. That's what I like doing. And that's because fiction is easy. You can just make things up and you can write all the wrongs in the world. And this book was incredibly hard because I basically had to start with all of these sort of pieces in the jigsaw puzzle, but huge blocks of the piece of the puzzle were missing. And also pieces from other puzzles were in the same box. So I had to try to assemble something that was sort of coherent and made sense. So I'm really eager to get back to fiction because that's easy for me. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, you mean as a writer? Did I mean like, yeah. How did you come to the point of
1: realizing
0: that I to do this as a I, I have a really bad autobiographical novel uh, somewhere. Like, I don't even know where it is. I think it's on my heart. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not that bad, right? <laughs> it's, it's really, really bad. I think it was like, if you guys know the movie Sideways, Remember the, the novel in that book, "The Day after Tomorrow?" Like the two it's two like shoebox fulls like of pages. That, that was my novel. I mean, I think at some point it was literally 800 pages, and almost all of it was terrible. And I realized that the reason it wasn't working is because I was trying to impose some sort of order on it, and fiction doesn't really work that way. Um, I took a really amazing class with uh, Jeffrey Wolf, who's a workshop instructor over at UC Irvine when I got my MFA. I said, basically, there are two boxes. There's the fiction box, and that's basically where you put all the things that you would like to be, you'd like to come true. That goes there. And then there's the stuff you're just stuck with. That's all your baggage. That's all the stuff that you can't get rid of no matter how hard you try. That goes in the nonfiction box. And it took me a really long time to kind of come to some sort of realization that that system really made a lot of sense for me because it didn't initially. So... So, with all of that said, why don't I read uh, just maybe another short, quick section, uh, maybe a couple pages, and then, you know, we can sign books and hang out and do whatever you guys need to do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very kind of you. I appreciate that. I, I, like, I love the love. I love the love. Keep it coming. So this is towards the end of the book, and uh, it's about maybe four pages, maybe about four or five minutes in length, so. And uh, to answer the question, "Where am I at now? Where am I sort of like, where's my headspace?" this, I think will probably answer it for you, or at least I hope it does. I was about six or seven when my mother took me to a psychic friend who told me I'd lived past lives. She said I'd once been a Scottish prince who was trampled to death by horses in his 30s and in a more recent life, a soldier who died in the Vietnam War from stepping on a landmine. Not long after, I had vivid dreams of falling off a carriage in what my seven-year-old mind dreamed Scotland looked like. Everything was made from marbles. And of my legs being blown off in a faraway delta, I'm sure I remembered from a Hollywood movie. The explosion would snap my legs on my mattress and wake me up. In both of these dreams, I was a father. I never saw my child's face or heard its voice, but I knew I had left a child, a son, I think, behind somewhere. I spent most of my 20s in a relationship with someone in her 30s, unable to commit to fatherhood even as I knew that her chances at a baby dwindled with each passing year. I told her I'm too young. Then I told her I'm too poor. When I got to my 30s and told her, I'm too crazy, she said, you're right, and had a child with someone else. I never had any doubt she'd become the great mother she is today, but I wonder still, could I be a good father? It's presumptuous to assume I'll be a father at all. I'm 40 years old and childless. Part of me waited this long because I knew I was an unstable man who would make an unstable father. I didn't want to pass on my depression to my children genetically or by example. And how could I take care of a child when I had no model for what a good father was? Remembering my fathers individually, they lied, drank, cheated, stole, and abandoned their loved ones. I know I can claim no moral high ground with them. These are the people who taught me. I've cheated on lovers, stolen people's time, and abandoned friends. I lied for years about who I was and made up stories in college about a thuggish life in an inner city jungle that was never really that rough. My own brief sojourn into storytelling, inventing a life as a sunset strip club kid, seeing someone shot in the head at point blank range, always rang out like the bullshit it was. Succumbing to my mother's mythmaking made me realize that every storyteller needs more than good stories. He needs to understand why he's telling the story he tells. Narrative is breath. My mother lied in her stories for the same reason I've told the truth in this one. From the breath my grandmother gave me to the breath it takes for you to read this sentence, stories sustain us. They carry us through the lives we convince ourselves we can't escape to get to the lives we ought or need to live instead. They create out of endless chaos a beginning, a middle, and an end. It took the writing of this book, which I've been thinking about for almost 20 years, to understand what made my mother tell such incredible tales. Stories can help you survive. They can transform your life. They can transform you from where you are into wherever you want to be. My mother turned her cage of a bedroom into a castle. Her prison became a launch pad for escape into a whole new identity. Perhaps that's why my mother was such a fan of killing herself off in her stories. She revealed that her brain tumor had taken one last fatal turn for the worst, and with time so short, revel in the temporary attention I gave her over and over again. Whenever I hear that someone dying of an incurable disease has tricked an always disbelieving public through a fake Facebook profile, I sigh and think, mom? But I understand. Strangely, so do others. I talk about my mother often when I give class talks about my first novel, The Madonnas of Echo Park, which is set in the largely Mexican-American neighborhood, pending gentrification, of Echo Park. (laughs) How is it that someone with the most American Indian of names came to write a story set among Mexicans? It's impossible to talk about that book without telling my and my mother's stories. In Idaho, I met an American Indian college student named Effie Hernandez. I'd never told my story to an Indian before. Here, at last, I thought was my reckoning. I'd have to pay for all of the attention and special treatment my name had given me. It was my turn to stay silent and absorb someone's rightful anger for appropriating a name, a culture, a people. After a thorough grilling during the class, Effie approached me afterward. I was prepared to not like you, she said, but I understand now why you lived the life you did. Of all the things your mother could have wanted to be, she wanted to be an American Indian. That's pretty amazing. The great American Indian writer Sherman Alexie once joked, Indians have to be so careful around non-Indians. We just make stuff up. I'm almost as good as a storyteller as my mother is, but I'm a terrible liar. My mother wasn't an Indian, but by Sherman's metric, she was the perfect Indian storyteller. I'm not an Indian either but feel I'm still somewhere between two names and two cultures. It's difficult because I can't even occupy the gray space mixed children try to claim for themselves. I get emails from my uh, my college Stanford's American Indian alum network that say, Dear Native alum, while I struggle to learn Spanish beyond a second grade level, In New York, where I live, I'm less Mexican or American Indian and more some kind of ethnic superhero, passing man, capable of passing for whatever any member of another ethnicity wants me to be. In their Indian or Pakistani or Latino eyes, they scan me over and ask, are you like me? Yes, I nod, but who is that? Who am I? I've been mistaken for Turkish, Pakistani, Indian American, Sri Lankan, Persian, Afghani, Egyptian, and a dozen other ethnicities. Each man, for it is usually a man who mistakes me as one of his own, says, oh, you'd be right at home in my country. The feeling of another man claiming me as a member of his own people and his own homeland is irresistible to someone who feels he truly has neither. I'm also somewhere between two fathers, the father who left me and Frank, the father who stayed. He tried to raise me in between all the men my mother married. I'm no longer a boy who needs to wait under a gauzy streetlight on a curb outside a bar or hide in the backseat of a car for a father to take me home. Two fathers are already there waiting for me. One has something I want. The other has something I need. I can't decide which father is which. When I dream of my own children, there's a fiery rose-cheeked daughter named Nova or a son who's still nameless because it took so long for me to find my own name. In my dreams, I sing to my children in a golden lullaby, I am your father. I will teach you every day what every father I was lucky enough to have taught me. I will put your needs first, above my fear, anxiety, and depression, and you will help me appreciate chaos more than I did when I was a child. I will strive to be perfect and fall far short. I will fail you. I will embarrass you. I will be frustrated with you for petty reasons that will later make me ashamed. I will expose you to, I hope, limited levels of familial insanity. I will be there for you every day of my whole life. I hear my mother saying, like at the end of a movie, when the credits begin to roll, do you think Brando makes it? Of all the things the men I call my fathers taught me, the lesson that matters most is spoken together in six different voices. Sometimes it is enough to survive. And when I am a father at last, I want to gather the men who fathered me over a large family-style dinner that is a physical impossibility except in my dreams. After a few drinks, our memories would recede like the tide, and the day-to-day lives we lead would spill out in all their banal glory, and we'd laugh at how ordinary our days have become, and aren't we grateful for that type of steadiness in our lives now? A chorus of six men calling me son might sound ludicrous to you, but to me, it's the sound of survival. Voices that have the power by the very noise they make to turn madness into song. Thanks for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks a lot.